Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's get started with prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King, Lord, we're grateful that you have brought us once again to this place, a place where we can be assured that your Spirit is here with us. For indeed, Lord, that you have made the promise that you would never leave us nor forsake us. We know that you accomplished this by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We know that... Um, as the days draw closer and closer towards the return of, of Yeshua, towards the return of our Messiah, that we need to be uh, diligent about what we're doing. We need to be about our Father's business. We need not be idle. We need not be lazy. We need not be like the uh, uh, servants in the parable, uh, left in the dark. Um, we shouldn't be uh, those who are uh, wondering if our master is going to return, uh, we need not be like those uh, those versions who had not trimmed their wicks and and had been ready and awaiting for the bridegroom to come. So, Lord, help us to be uh, diligent. Help us to press in. Uh, continue to give us uh, a desire to do Your will and uh, a heart to to serve others, even as You became a servant of all those that You uh, encountered. Uh, continue to help us to understand this book of Galatians. Um, we know that the subject can be difficult, not only to study and to understand, but, Lord, to apply to our lives in a practical manner. Um, it takes courage to take a stand for the Word of God. It takes um, it takes a, a, a supernatural uh, ability to, to walk into the pages of the words of God and to to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, to be pleasing to you, to to hide your words in our heart, to to um, let the word of Christ dwell richly within us, uh, to be filled with the Spirit, Lord. All of these things are are done by the power of the Spirit within us, as you promised. Indeed, would happen, and so let us not ever make a mistake to think that these are being done under under our own power. In fact, the fruit, Lord, that we bear is fruit uh, that is born because of the power of the Spirit within us and because we turn away from sin, and because you've given us a desire to be pleasing to you. So be with each and every student that's joined me tonight. I pray that you'll be with those who weren't able to make it. I pray that you'll continue to raise them up during these these um, these confusing times. Lord, I send a, a special prayer for uh, those who are in Texas and the immediately immediate surrounding area that have been hardest hit by... Um, by the hurricane, 
and by the floodwaters and by uh, the, the, just the the um, incredible disaster that took place just recently. Uh, Father, I pray that you'll extend mercy and that you'll continue to protect them and that you'll uh, give our, the leaders of our country uh, wisdom as they deal with the situation and help those who are in desperate need, those who have been displaced by the floodwaters, those who uh, are um, without homes, without transportation, without food, without water. Lord, um, protect us and, and continue to provide for us, for you are indeed our, a God who loves his children. Uh, we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and glory for all these things with Shem Yeshua. Amen. Well, welcome everyone to another week in our study to the book of Galatians. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. As I mentioned earlier, I'm a Torah teacher out of Congregation Kehilat Tunaba in Thornton, Colorado. Would love to have you come join us on a Shabbat um, worship service if you're in the, if the Denver area. Uh, Thornton is just north of Denver. You can find all of the relevant details uh, to our congregation uh, by visiting us on the web at www.graftedin.com. And from our homepage, you can just click on, around and find uh, the location, the meeting times, the class times, the sermon information. Um, as well, you can find a lot of information about um, not just the common, not just the congregation, but you can find a lot of information uh, that I've written about the Torah commentaries and other relevant uh, commentaries to the Torah and things like that, because that's my home website, uh, my congregational home website. Also, if you've got internet access or a smartphone that has internet access, head on over to tetzetorah.com, T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. That's my own personal website, and that's where I park all of my commentaries. So you can find uh, many of the things that are over at Grafted In, you can also find at Tetzetorah. But if there's something that you cannot find at Grafted In, you can surely find it at tetzetorah.com. Um You'll be able to follow along with the Galatians commentary there as well. I make these recordings each week. We meet each Saturday evening from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, approximately an hour. Sometimes it's a little longer, sometimes it's a little shorter. You're certainly welcome to join us. It's free. Um, all you will need is an internet connection, obviously. You'll also need Skype, but you don't even need a Skype account because you can join as a guest as long as you have the Skype information, as long as you know the link to the uh, teachings. And you can find all that information by clicking on either the banner across the top of my website that mentions the live internet study or click on the Galatians commentary link. If you don't see the banner, maybe your browser's hiding it like a pop-up or something, then just uh, from the menu section along the top, click on the Galatians commentary and uh, look up and down the page and you should find all the information about the written notes, the audio notes that I make available each week and things like that. All right, let's date stamp our recording. This is, um, wow, we're into a new month, September 2nd, 2017. And we've started a brand new semester. So we're at week 71 of our Galatians notes. And we've been going along for... Over a year, it's been a, a year and a half, and we're actually approaching two years. It'll be two years uh, before the end of this year. It'll be two years that we've been going along. And I'm just taking my time. I'm going kind of paragraph by paragraph. The, the, the written commentary isn't really all that long. It's a little shy of 200 pages, in case you're interested in printing it out, PDF document. But um, I'm not in a hurry to finish everything. I just want to go 
uh, verse by verse, uh, according to what I've written, and paragraph by paragraph, and stop and glean the information as is fitting. Okay? All right. Without further ado, let's um, jump into the commentary tonight. We've started a new chapter. We're in chapter 4 of Galatians, and I think that that's progress. Last week, what I did for week 70 is instead of jumping into the notes, I went back and, and performed a kind of an overview of what I feel is kind of a traditional understanding of the book, uh, seen from a traditional Christian perspective. And, of course, I contrasted that or compared that with what uh, appears to be the um, the up-and-coming, as some would see it, uh, newer perspective or the more updated uh, views of the book as seen through the eyes of many within Messianic circles. This, of course, would be people who espouse to a Hebraic lifestyle, people who are returning to walking after the Torah of Moshe on an everyday basis. Um, I belong to this group of people. I consider myself a Messianic, a part of the Torah communities, Torah respectful, Torah compliant, uh, whatever label you've heard us, uh, Messianic communities, Messianic Jews and Gentiles, things like that. Um, it doesn't mean I cease to be a Christian, but it does mean that I have some rather sharp disagreements with my um, traditional Christian counterparts at times over the ongoing relevance of the Torah of Moshe, particularly in the areas of the of the visible um, visible covenant uh, markers like um, Sabbath and kosher and circumcision and the the festivals and and wearing tzitzit and putting a mezuzah on our door and things like that. So uh, I, I'm a Jewish person, but I, I espouse the faith in Yeshua. This makes me a Christian in that respect. Let's go ahead and look at the common. I'm sorry. Let's go ahead and look at the um, uh, liturgy that I use every week. Uh, I like to pull out some Hebrew and some Greek. And for those of you who are with me in the live study tonight, you'll see that I've got um, a passage pulled up out of the Hebrew. This is Deuteronomy chapter six. And what I'll do tonight is I'm just going to read the. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I'll go ahead and read the um, the the traditional Shema, which is three passages. This is Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 4 through 9. And then we'll jump over to Deuteronomy 11, verse 13 through about 21, I believe. And then we'll jump over to Numbers chapter 15 and read verse, uh, uh, I think it's uh, 17 through the end of the chapter. I can't remember the exact numbering there, but we'll, we'll see it when we get to it, okay? And we'll he read Hebrew and read uh, English, okay? Uh, by the way, for those of you who are following along with me in the screen, the um, what you're seeing on your screen is the uh, website, uh, merchun.mamre.org. And this is a nice website because it contains the English on the right and the Hebrew on the left. Remember, Hebrew reads right to left, backwards according to what we're used to in the, in the English, which is left to right. But... Um, the English that you're seeing is the 1917 Jewish Publication Society version. It reads kind of like the King James Version. Okay? So that's what we're going to read for English, and then we'll jump over and read the Hebrew. All right, the English reads, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 5, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Verse 6, and these words which I command thee this day shall be upon thy heart. Verse 7. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Verse 8. And thou shalt bind them for sign upon thy hand, 
and they shall be for frontlets between thine eyes. Verse 9, And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thy house, and upon thy gates. The Hebrew of those same verses, verse 4, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Verse 5, Vahavta et Adonai Elohecha, v'chol levavka, v'chol nafshecha, v'chol meodecha. Verse 6, Vahayu ha ha'ele asher, Anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavecha. Verse 7, Vashinantam le vanecha, v'debarata bam b'shivtaka b'vetaka, b'vetaka uvlechtaka v'derek uvshachbaka uvkumeka. Verse 8, Uch tav, uch, I'm sorry, Uch sharatam al yadecha v'hayu bain enecha. Verse 9, Now let's go to chapter 11 and read the second passage of the Shema. This starts in verse uh, 13 and goes down through verse 21. Verse 13, English, reads, And it shall come to pass, if ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, verse 14, that I will give the rain in your land, of your land in its season, the former rain and the latter rain. Thou mayest gather in thy corn, and thy wine, and thine oil, verse 15, and I'll give grass in thy field for thy cattle, and thou shalt eat and be satisfied. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be deceived, and you, you turn aside and serve the gods and worship them. Verse 17, And the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven, so that there shall be no rain, and the ground shall not yield her fruit, and ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Verse 18, Therefore ye shall lay up these words, these my words, in your heart and in your soul, and ye shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. Verse 19, and You shall teach them to your children, uh, talking of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Verse 20, And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thy house and upon thy gates. And the final verse, verse 21, That your days may be multiplied, and the days of your children upon the land which the Lord swore unto your fathers to give them as the days of the heavens above the earth. Let's go back and read the Hebrew. Starting in verse 13 again. Vahaya im shmo tishmu el mitzvotai ashir anochi mitzave et chem hayom lahava et adonai elohechem ul abdo bcholovavhum uchom nafshechem. Verse 14. Venata ti mitar artsekim beito yore emokush va asafta deganecha verirosh vatirosh daga vietzharecha. Verse 15. Venata ti a sev. Besadcha, Livhendcha, Vachalta, Vesavata. Verse 16. He lachen pen yivte lavavchem vestartem, Vavadhem, Elohim achem vishtakavitem lahem. Verse 17. Vachara, Af Adonai bachem, Vatsar et hashamayim, Velo yye matar, Vahadama lo titen et yavula, Vaavadhem mehera me alcharsta tova ashir adonai notin lachem. Verse 18. Vasamtem et devarai ele al lavalchem va al nafshachem. Uk sharatem utham ut al yedchem vahayu. Letotovot ben enechem. Verse 
19 Velimadtem otam et benechem le de better bam bishibtaka bivetaka uvlektaka vederaka uvshaktaka uvkumeka verse 20 uktavtam al mezuzot betaka vishareha verse 21 lemaan yirbu yimechem vimech Ve nechem al hadama asher nishba adonai la avotechem la tet lechem kiyeme hashamim al haaretz. And now let's turn to Numbers chapter uh, fifteen, and we'll jump down to start in verse. Uh, let's see, where does it start? 15 starts in verse, actually verse 37, and goes through the end of the chapter, which is just verse 41. Um, English reads, verse 37, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, verse 38, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them throughout their generations fringes in the corners of their garments, and that they put with the fringe of each corner a thread of blue. And it shall be unto you a fringe that ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord, and do them, and that you may not go about after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you used to go astray. Verse 40, that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. Verse 41, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Let's read the Hebrew. Verse 37, Vayomer Adonai el Moshe lemor. Verse 38, Verse 39. Verse 40. And the final Pasuk, Okay. And that will be the uh, liturgy for tonight for the Hebrew. Let's turn now to the book of Galatians, where we're going to pull our Greek liturgy. Of course, we're starting a new chapter. We're starting in chapter 4. And the first section that we're going to be studying tonight is chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, which in most Bibles uh, uh, designates a kind of a, a short section on uh, sons and heirs. So we're just going to read those verses in English out of the ESV, and then we'll entertain the, uh, the SBLGNT from the Greek as well. The English from ESV, starting in verse 1, reads, 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Verse 2. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 6, And because, I'm sorry, I skipped verse 5, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the, under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent 
the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. All right. Uh, let's read the uh, morphological Greek New Testament, which is basically the same as the SBLGNT. Lego de f hasen kronon ho kleronamos nepias esten uden diafere dulukurias panton on. Verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 2. Allahu pa epitrapus esten kai oikonamos acherites prothesmias tu patros. Verse 4. Hutos kai hemes hate amen. Napioi who patas doikea tu kazmu, hematha dedolomenoi. Verse 4. Verse 4. Hatide elthen to pleurona tu cranu exapestalen hotheas ton wion altu. Genomenon et gunaikas genomenon hupanaman. Verse 5. Hina tus hupanaman exegorose hina ten weathesian apalabomen. Verse 6. Hati de este huioi exapestalen hotheas to pnuma tu weu altu estas cardias hemon krazon aba ho pater. Verse 7. Hoste uketi e dulas. Ala wias e de wias, kai clerinamas dia the u. And we'll stop right there. Okay, let's take a look at the commentary. Um, what we learned last week is that essentially Christians and Messianics both espoused to faith in Messiah. But I gave this lengthy, in fact, I took the entire commentary last week to explain to my readers that for the most part, Traditional Christianity interprets the book of Galatians in one fashion. Their interpretation and application is slightly different than the interpretation and application that's performed by your average Messianic uh, Gentile and Jew today, particularly those who are of the pro-Torah persuasion, those who are returning to the Hebraic roots of their faith. And what I've done is I... Um, I went looking around the internet to see if I could find a concise way to say this instead of taking the whole hour like I did last week. And I found a, a, a very nice commentary by an author by the name of, um, I think his name is Ho, uh, a Korean author, I believe. And um, he's got a commentary online. Um, I'll read you the name of the commentary in a bit. But first, let me just pull a quote from his commentary on page 33. It's a short commentary. It's only like 100 pages long. And um, he wrote this nice little summary about the differences between the traditional Christian view, which is sometimes termed the Lutheran view or the Reformation view, and the traditional view that the Messianics are now adopting, which uh, takes its cue uh, initially from the New Paul perspective, but has since uh, kind of developed a little further beyond E.P. Sanders' initial work that began in 1977. Particularly, there are some Christian authors and non-Christian authors who have have come along lately and, and have begun to provide what um, it seems to be a very well-reasoned uh, uh, argument that the book of Galatians uh, can be read a bit differently than the traditional Lutheran-slash-Reformation perspective. 
particularly um, the author by the name of James D.G. Dunn is probably one of the more better well-known spoken advocates of the uh, uh, interpreting Paul in a newer perspective, a, a more uh, up-to-date, uh, more socially relevant way for Jews and Gentiles of today. And uh, so we're going to take our cue from uh, this author who is actually uh, kind of a self-titled student of um, E.P. Sanders in that, in that regard. Uh, I want to tell you right up front that if you do a Google search for new Paul perspective or new perspective on Paul in PP, you're going to find that um, there are there are parts of the new perspective that are probably controversial, and um, I myself don't even agree with with some of those parts, um, particularly uh, some of the ways that Sanders draws a, a disagreement with Paul and his own Judaism. But to the degree that the new perspective is is trying to recover uh, a more accurate view of Paul's first century Judaisms and recover a more positive view of Paul's uh, stance on Torah, particularly as it is as it uh, relates to uh, you know vis-a-vis believers, then um, we can we can safely read the new perspective with the assurances that really we're not trying to uproot um, the traditional understanding of justification by faith alone through grace you know by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Um, rather, we're just trying to understand how did Paul. Uh, come to the place where he needed to write the book of Galatians because of the social situation that was that he was facing in that day. And so let me just read this this summary. Um, it's a short one-pager uh, from this author and see if that will help to also better outline or describe what I believe is this kind of this conflict between the traditional view of Galatians and the now newer perspective on Galatians. And I'll let you draw your conclusion as to which view you think is probably uh, going to be a little bit more relevant for you as a believer. Uh, Ho writes, starting on the bottom of page 33, under this paragraph entitled Summary, Lines Drawn in the Sand. He writes, quote, by now the contours, by the way, this is not in my commentary. This is just added information. This should only take me about five minutes to read. So um, just sit tight and then we'll jump into my own commentary, okay? All right. Ho writes, by now the contours of the controversy should be evident. The new perspective has claimed that Paul and Judaism shared common ground about the role of grace and works. So that contrast could not, as Luther contended, have been the issue in question in his letters. In Westerholm's words, now we're on the top of page 34, and, and be careful to listen to this quote from Westerholm, a very well-known Christian author. Quote, We are left, it seems, with the following alternatives. Either the traditional Lutheran view is correct, Pauline Christianity is distinguished from rabbinic thought by its doctrine of justification by faith, not works, and scholars such as Sanders have misrepresented Judaism, or Paul himself is the one who, for whatever reason, misrepresented the faith of his fathers, or the traditional view is wrong, and Paul's opposition to Judaism did not lie in a rejection of works. End quote. All right, Ho goes on to say, so either Luther was wrong about Judaism, Paul was wrong about Judaism, or new perspective scholars are wrong about Judaism. Period. And I think that's a very telling statement because he's just plain and he's just forthright. And that's essentially what we have going on today. I I was listening to um, some commentaries by D.A. Carson this week in preparation for this week's study. D.A. Carson is one of the more vocal opponents of the new perspective of views, and as such has taken Sanders to task, has taken um, 
uh, done to task has taken N.T. right to task. In a word, Carson uh, strongly disagrees with new perspective uh, views on on interpreting Paul and particularly on new perspective, uh, the classic new perspective views on on what Paul meant by justification. And so uh, D.A. Carson is a force to be reckoned with, to be sure. He's not your average uh, preacher. He's a very well-educated exegete, and so um, his commentary is worth reading. His commentaries on the book of Galatians are worth reading. However, I have to disagree with his uh, his his overall conclusions about um, reading uh, Paul and Paul's Judaisms. I'm gonna. I I I myself find that um, Luther himself was a little misguided when it comes to some of the uh, ways in which to better understand Paul. So let's keep reading this little um, uh, uh, this little uh, excerpt from. Uh, this author, and see if we can uh, just follow along with that for a moment. Like I said, it should only take about five minutes. So, the first and second alternatives about either Luther being wrong or Paul being wrong, both of these alternatives sit very uneasily for evangelicals, Ho goes on to say. He continues, The purpose of this thesis, however, is not to directly evaluate Sanders' interpretation of Judaism. Rather, we will examine a subsidiary debate between traditional and new perspective interpreters expressed thus. And he makes another quote. The issue that divides the Lutheran Paul from his contemporary critics is whether justification by faith not by works of law means sinners find God's approval by grace through faith, not by anything they do, or whether its thrust is that Gentiles are included in the people of God by faith without the bother of becoming Jews. End quote. And that particular quote really is one of the heart is the heart of one of the primary debates between traditional Lutheran perspectives on Paul and the now new perspective on Paul. Is Paul combating a justification by faith apart from works of the law, like the Lutheran uh, advocates say? Or, instead, does justification by faith refer to Gentiles being included in the people of God by faith without uh, the bother of becoming proselyte, proselyte Jews? Which exactly is it? That's basically what we're trying to ascertain as to what's going on in Paul's writings. Okay? Ho goes on to say, We will try to isolate and investigate this particular issue, asking, quote, Is Dunn's social function of law the issue in question when Paul teaches justification by faith in Christ? Recall that James D.G. John is famous for coining this term, the social function of law in Paul's day. Uh, Ho goes on to say, Note that we will not argue, as Christer Stendhal did, that justification is not a statement about how sinners find acceptance before God. Indeed, virtually all traditional scholarship and the most nuanced new perspective scholars recognize, and listen very carefully, both anti-works righteousness and anti-ethnic exclusion teaching in Paul. Did you guys catch that? So, even though we've got this sharp disagreement between the, the traditional views of Paul, which would be the Lutheran-slash-Reformation view, was over against the new perspectivist views. Both groups would recognize that within Paul, we've got the anti-works righteousness rhetoric of Paul and the anti-ethnic exclusion teaching of Paul. So we've got some agreement on both sides of the camp as to um, um, part of the central focus of Paul's teachings. Let's go on to continue. But Dunn, Ho says, provides the most comprehensive case 
for the prominence of the anti-exclusion theme in Romans and Galatians, particularly in passages about the works of the law. And these are things that I've been bringing out in my own commentary. Therefore, Ho concludes in this little section, Therefore, our focus will now turn to Dunn's treatment of the law in the primary passages where Paul contrasts faith in Christ and works of the law, and he makes reference to Galatians 2.15 through 3.28, as well as Romans 2.17 through 3.21. Okay, let's turn now to a look at uh, my commentary itself. Um, now that we've done that overview and got kind of a better idea of the two basic uh, ways to interpret Galatians, uh, recall that as I'm working through my notes, I'm going to take... It's not a, I don't want to call myself a, a, a traditional new perspectivist, but I will say that I don't, I don't follow along with everything that the traditional Lutheran and Reformation views on Paul uh, espouse to either, particularly when it comes to um, the relevance and ongoing uh, usefulness of the Torah in the life of a Jew and a Gentile believer in Messiah. I'm definitely going to stay on the side of those who would espouse to the continuing relevance of Torah. So... Um, I hope you can understand that that's the perspective that I'm taking in my particular commentary. All right, let's back up just for a split second. In chapter 3 of Galatians, what we learned, if I if I go back over to the uh, English for a second, um, is what we learned by looking at um, Galatians is that uh, Paul has basically been, in my opinion, in this section of chapter 3 and moving into chapter 4, He's basically been um, trying to desperately get the Galatian Gentiles to understand that they have already arrived, if I can use that terminology. They've already been brought to the goal. They have already been brought to the place of genuine covenant membership if they have placed their genuine faith in Messiah. If they're not merely uh, in decision mode as to whether Jesus is Christ or not. If they've already made that personal decision to use Christian parlance, if they've already accepted Christ and become saved, then from Paul's perspective, they are in. Now, what exactly have they joined? This is where the lines of disagreement have been drawn in the sand between the um, the Judaisms, the, the non-believing Judaisms, the unbelieving Judaisms of Paul's day, and some of the Messianic Jews of Paul's day, but Paul himself is going to take a hard stance against that. And we can see this more clearly if I turn to, for instance, uh, chapter three, just for a split second. If you're on my, if you're with me in the class right now, you can see on the screen I've got chapter three of Galatians pulled up. And let me just look at a few verses that I wanted to highlight for you. Uh, let's see. For instance, the first. 10 verses in chapter 3 are this kind of theological attack on this idea of of inclusion into the people of God via the vehicle of conversion. Remember, one of the better hermeneutic keys to understanding the book of Galatians is to understand that there was a struggle or a difference of a sharp difference of agreement between this idea of how a person in the first century got into the people group known as Israel and then subsequently how a person maintained their membership once they made it in. So to use the language of E.P. Sanders from his uh, seminal work in 1977, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, uh, a central issue in the book of Paul is from the Jewish perspective, you know, from their central understanding of, of society, a central 
uh, issue facing the Judaisms of Paul's day as they began to interact on a social level with the, with the Gentiles who were coming into their synagogues. A central issue facing them was uh, how does one get in and how does one stay in? So this getting in, staying in principle is going to go a long way towards understanding the book of Galatians as a whole, particularly as we return to a better sociological understanding of the book itself. And it's in this worldview of getting in and staying in that the, that the Torah itself also becomes part of the equation because the Torah begins to take on what's known as a social function. And this is a term that we learned, that we picked up from E.P. Sanders. There's this social function of the law that Judaism held to, meaning the law itself helped to define the people group of God from a social perspective. So getting in from the first century Jewish perspective, as far as we can tell from much of the extant rabbinic writings, uh, at least from a, a majority of the Judaisms that Paul uh, had to combat in the first century. I'm not saying all of the Judaisms espoused to this view, but but as far as we can tell from what we've uncovered uh, from the literature that has survived from that period, this would include both rabbinic literature as well as patristic literature, right? Non-Jewish literature, the early church fathers' writings, things like that. Um, as far as we can tell, um, the Judea, many of the Judaisms of Paul's day, a good number of them at least, I, I myself even uh, tend to think that it's that it's a majority based on uh, pre, uh, current even current studies, Judaic uh, studies today. But a, a good number of them believe that the is uh, the Jewish people, by virtue of God's election, um, brought them into the covenant by grace. They described their election as grace, meaning it wasn't something that they earned. They weren't brought into the covenant by self-effort. They weren't brought into genuine covenant membership because they were doing, they were striving, because they were working their way in, because they were trying to keep the law. That wasn't it at all. That's really the the caricature that's been created and fostered and championed by ever since the days of Luther and continuing on through the Reformation period and up until the present Christianity is of today, this idea that the Judaisms of Paul's day were striving to earn their way into God's uh, family by keeping the Torah. This is a caricature that I think is a stereotype that I think is inaccurate. To be sure, Jewish people of today don't have that, by and large, don't follow in that uh, caricature, that, that, that stereotype either. Instead, what they believe is this kind of this nationalism, this election by by um, by automatic ethnicity, by automatic inclusion because of God's election. This this kind of um, passive covenant membership that brings them in uh, just because of their heredity, because of their belonging to the people known as Israel. In a word, just because they're ethnically ethnic, ethnic Jews, that gets them in. So, from their perspective, as a as a as a kind of a members only group they had they were faced with the question of what do we do with the gentiles because they're not born as ethnic jews they don't have what we might describe as practical jewishness they're not legally recognized jews what do we do with them they want to join the people group of israel they want to they want to get in they want to serve god and and follow torah they want to gain access to the world to come and all the promises that the torah spells out for covenant members what do we do with them well, the rabbis came with, up with an answer that was known as the proselyte ceremony. And in essence, they, they created a, a, a way for a Gentile to take on legal standing Jewish identity. And in doing so, once the former Gentile was recognized as a current Jew from a legal perspective, then he joined the people group known as Israel. And essentially, um, covenant membership was granted to him on a Jewish level. 
and Torah observance was then became incumbent upon him as a citizen of Israel, and therefore the ancestral customs became his because the ancestors became his. Is this all making sense? This is drastically different than the than the description of of um, how a person got into or became righteous uh, from the Lutheran perspective. So if we see this, if we're looking through uh, Galatians chapter 3, we'll see Paul combating this idea of getting in, staying in. And we see this in the way that Paul describes to the Gentile Christians that because of their faith the Messiah, they have already arrived, they've already made it in to the genuine and lasting covenant membership that they were seeking in God. They don't need to try to join the people group of God through this door known as conversion, through the door known of, as Jewish ethnicity. Instead, they have already come through the door known as faith in Messiah. And in going through the proper door of faith in Messiah, they've already made it in. So the message of the influencers, the message of the Judaizers, is a false message. It's, an, it's a superfluous message. To be sure, if you place your faith in your ethnicity, you're going to discount faith in Messiah, and you're going to end up on the wrong side of the equation. You're actually going to be in danger of losing your covenant membership if, in fact, you haven't already made a decision for Christ. You guys understand what I mean by that? So look at this in Paul. When we look at Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse, say, um, uh, let's see. Um, let me jump down through uh, verse 14, for instance. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So Paul starts to describe how that um, you have you, Gentiles, have become sons of Abraham if you, in fact, follow in the footsteps of Abraham. And if you follow in the footsteps of Abraham and uh, walk in the faith that Abraham had, then you too will enjoy the blessings of Abraham and the faith that Abraham had will be uh, reckoned to you as well, be recognized in you as well. The blessings of Abraham will be recognized to you. So the promises of Abraham, the blessings and the promises of Abraham are synonymous. And uh, we would receive the promised spirit, the promise that was given to Abraham. He goes on to say in um, in verse, let's see, uh, let me jump down to, I'm looking at the B verbs. You are, you, you know, am, is, are, was, were, be, being, been. The way that Paul's going to describe these is in, say, for instance, uh, verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under guardian, meaning we have we don't have to try and await, work our way towards the teacher who is Yeshua. In Christ Jesus, you are sons of God through faith. Notice the, the B verb there, are, the copula. You are sons of God. Uh, for as many of you, in verse 27, has baptized, were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Um, verse 28, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then again, finally in verse 29, as we work our way towards what we're going to look at tonight, you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, you are heirs according to promise. So, Paul is in no uncertain terms explaining to the Gentile Christians, don't let anyone tell you that you have not arrived. In terms of getting in and staying in, you're in. And what are you in? You're in the genuine family of God. You are in the uh, genuine family of Abraham. You are sons according to promise. You are heirs according to promise. You are sons according to faith. You are um, you have made it in. You have arrived. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And so it's with that that we move into chapter 4.
and began to look at this same theme. Now, remember in chapter 3, Paul used, in the very last few verses of chapter 3, Paul used this analogy of um, someone from Greco-Roman culture who was described as a youngster, a boy, who in, in, in the time of Paul's day, would have been perhaps like a Roman citizen, right? A, a Greco-Roman person who would have been accompanied to and from school by what we call a a, a, a boy guide. Um, the, the the Greek word is uh, paidagogos, and the paidagogos is a someone, a kind of a bodyguard that um, accompanied the boy to school to make sure he got there safely, and as such. In this accompanying him to school, once the the, 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 the boy got to school, he then um, learned from the teachers at school. And then when he when it was time for him to go home, uh, the boy guide w- would um, accompany him back home to make sure he wasn't robbed or make sure he didn't, you know, fall on on uh, uh, maybe thieves didn't uh, fall on him on the road or something like that. You know what I mean? So the uh, the father of the boy was the one who appointed this paedagogos uh, to guard the boy as he went back and forth from school. And Paul uses this analogy, which was common to Greco-Roman life in his day. Paul uses this analogy to explain that the Torah was a kind of paedagogos. It accompanied the boy, which was the, the person who had not yet made the decision that Jesus was Christ. So in other words, the unbelieving um, covenant member, Paul used this analogy to describe that the Torah itself played this role of accompanying the unbeliever in his journey of life, particularly the Jewish unbeliever and, and also the Gentile unbeliever, accompanied this person along and carried them along and guided them to the school where he would encounter, where the boy would encounter the teacher. And the teacher in Paul's analogy is not the Torah per se. The teacher is actually Yeshua. I call him the teacher of righteousness, which is a term that you can find in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The teacher of righteousness, or the teacher using a capital T, is not the Torah in this analogy. The teacher is Yeshua. So once the person becomes saved, then the 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 boy guide, the paedagogos, no longer need function in this capacity. The Torah no longer needs to lead a person to Christ once the person reaches Christ. And so in that limited analogy, Paul explains that we don't need to strive to become. We have already become. We have already uh, reached that goal of accepting Christ. And it's the spirit in our hearts that cries out, Abba, Father, something we read about in the book of Romans. So, Paul continues on this theme of you have become. You have become because you have already arrived at the teacher and you have uh, taken on this role of genuine covenant membership. And it is with that idea that we move into chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and we read, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Let's read my comments. And we're going to see how it ties into the paedagogos of the previous chapter, although from a slightly different angle. Paul now turns his attention to a teaching on the biblical concept of the heir. The Greek word rendered heir in our verse above is kleronomos, and it's made up of two words, klera, which is um, a person or thing allotted, and namos, which is our familiar Greek word for law. So it's 
some person or thing that is allotted by law, is what the word kleronomos means. And it's understood from the English reference to what as from the English as that refers to one who receives a portion allotted to him by law as can be inferred by the suffix of the Greek namas, which equals law, like I just said. What is Paul trying to teach us in this phrase? Having begun with the Pythagogos theme in the last chapter, he now focuses on the logistics of how the parent, the father of the boy in our previous midrash, has control over how and when the boy is to gain the promised family inheritance. So now Paul's going to switch analogies slightly, but the, the same net effect is, is, is in view. The idea that the boy is in need of something that he does not have yet. In the first analogy with the Pythagogos, the boy needs to be led to the teacher. And once he arrives at the teacher, he no longer needs the Pythagogos. In the second analogy of the Kleronomos and the Napios that we're going to describe, which is a, a ter- the Greek term for the boy, Paul's going to describe this idea of a boy who is an heir because of the family that he's brought up in, and yet because of his age, because of his immaturity, because of the fact that he's not yet an adult, he does he cannot really enjoy the inheritance that is rightfully his by law, uh, yet he has to wait. It's kind of like this idea of a trust fund or whatnot. He it's he has to mature in order to be able to make use of this trust fund. He has to wait a certain time period, and the time period is determined by the father. So let's keep reading my commentary. Notice that the verse teaches that the child, which is a term signifying spiritual immaturity, this is the Midrash part that Paul's using, viz. unregenerate, right? He's the unsaved person. This child is both an heir and yet a slave. He must mature in his faith before he can utilize the family inheritance promised by his father. Once he reaches the, quote, legal age, end quote, set by the father, he then gains ownership, as it were, of the family inheritance, but not sooner. Understand what I mean? Until such a time, he is subject to guardians and trustees. I continue in my commentary. The whole midrash that Paul is going to be giving to us in these first seven verses of chapter 4 is a teaching on sonship from a first-century perspective, conveniently couched in terminology that the Galatians could easily identify with, which is what? That of Roman law. I believe the Jewish people are the child, heirs according to birth, yet slaves to sin and death, owners of the promises, that is, the estate of Hashem, as spelled out to the fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov. Understand what I mean? From Paul's perspective, even though he's using Roman law for his analogy, the Jewish people in his analogy are the ones who are the child. And we gain this idea from, remember, uh, that God says of Israel way back in Exodus chapter 3 that Israel is my firstborn son. So we know that God, from time period of the Tanakh, has considered Israel as his son, his offspring, someone, albeit adopted, right? Israel is the adopted son. God only has really one natural-born son, and that would be Yeshua. All the rest of us, both Jew and Gentile Messiah, we're adopted via the faith of Messiah. But nevertheless, Israel is God's firstborn, albeit adopted, son, firstborn son, right? Remember, there's no natural sons except Yeshua. So Israel is his son, and yet Israel, in their state of unbelief, is still a minor. They're a spiritual minor. Let's keep reading my commentary. They, excuse me, they, the children, are under the supervision of guardians and trustees. And who would these be? 
These would be the law and the prophets in my understanding. And they're under the supervision of guardians and trustees until the moment of spiritual salvation set by the Father in heaven. This immediately uh, ties it back to the Pythagogos analogy that we used earlier where the Torah guards the boy as he goes along and travels to and from school. Make sense? All right, let's keep reading. The moment of personal trusting faithfulness in the promised seed, viz. in Yeshua, is the goal of the Torah that we read about in Romans 10, verse 4, as well as it's the um, it's the the goal that we read about all throughout the book of um, Hebrews. The, the the fact that the Torah is leading the, the covenant member along the path towards the teacher is how God designed the Torah to work in our lives, even as unregenerate people, even as unsaved people, both Jew and Gentile. The Torah plays this vital function in the hands of the Holy Spirit to lead us to the moment of personal decision where we place our unreserved trusting faithfulness in Yeshua. And so Paul's going to keep going with this analogy, the guardians and the trustees, the law and the prophets. As I keep reading my commentary, once the child, that is the Jewish people, matured in their faith, uh, that is, they placed their trust in Yeshua. They then gained lasting covenant membership and thus received the promise of the Father. Let me pause and, and mention that I believe that it's best to understand covenant membership in the Bible on at least two significant levels. What I mean by that is, from the Torah perspective, from the, from the period of the Tanakh, we can understand that God brought Israel into a temporal covenant membership when he invited them to receive the words of Torah way back in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. The words of Torah were given on Mount Sinai, and God entered into a temporal covenant with Israel. It's temporal in the regards of that the blessings are temporal because they're predicated upon Israel's obedience to the commandments from a temporal perspective, meaning the the stipulations of the covenant are temporal. They are bound to this world. The blessings are primarily this world blessings, and they are temporal in the sense that when a person dies, they do not inherit any of those blessings anymore. They cannot take them with them into the age to come because there is no age to come if you had not placed your faith in God. Genuine faith in God equals genuine faith in Jesus. And if you do not have genuine faith in God, then you do not have genuine faith in Messiah. And thus, there is no age to come for you. Everything is this world. Everything is temporal. Everything ceases to function once you die. Understand my point? So the blessings of Torah are temporal. And they're, but they are covenant member. It's, it's covenant membership, but on a temporal basis. And so Israel as a whole enjoys temporal covenant membership. And temporal covenant membership means that they must follow the Torah from a temporal perspective, and they enjoy the temporal blessings that come along with that. How, however, if a, an Israelite in this condition also matriculates to genuine faith in God, which by today's standards equals genuine faith in Messiah, then their temporal covenant membership transforms into lasting covenant membership. And on this level, they don't lose their covenant membership as a Jew, they retain it, although they take on the additional status of lasting covenant membership. And in this state, they enjoy the blessings of the world to come, i.e., once they die, if they die before Jesus returns, they will be resurrected into, unto eternal life and rule and reign with Messiah in the millennial kingdom to come. And then they will actually go on to enjoy life 
eternally in, he in the heavenly state once the uh, millennial period has run its course after a thousand years. The, the really nice part is that Gentiles in Messiah can skip the, the part that's known as temporal covenant membership in Israel. They jump straight into the eternal covenant membership status package part when they place their faith in Messiah. They don't have to go into this idea of becoming a temporal member, member in uh, Israel by, for instance, becoming circumcised or anything like that. And in fact, becoming circumcised is the sign of the temporal covenant membership itself. Physical circumcision of the flesh, as described in Genesis 17, describes this temporal covenant membership. However, permanent covenant membership or lasting covenant membership, the sign of that, um, of that covenant is the circumcision of the heart. So, covenant membership the sign of covenant membership, both on a temporal basis and on a lasting basis, is both the same. It's circumcision. But for the temporal covenant memberships, the, the temporal covenant members, the, uh, the, 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 the sign is circumcision of the flesh. But for those who are permanent covenant members, the sign is circumcision of the heart. And the nice part is, a Jew like the, the likes of Paul, who is a Messianic Jew, is both at the same time a temporal covenant member, meaning he's he's a physical Jew, but he's also at the same time a lasting covenant member. He's a Messianic Jew. And Gentiles who are brought into the covenant via faith in Messiah, who do not receive physical circumcision, do not have to describe themselves in temporal covenant terms. They don't in other words, they're not they're not uh they're not physical Jews, nor do they need to be. In fact, Paul would warn them that they dare, that they should not become physical Jews. They should remain as Gentiles. We read about that in 1 Corinthians. Um, don't seek to take on circumcision. It's unnecessary. Uh, just go ahead and stick with being a Gentile. However, if you do take on circumcision of the flesh, it doesn't turn you into a Jew at that point in time. It just uh, it just uh, signifies uh, obedience to a commandment that was for uh, physical Israel in the beginning. So, I hope I'm not confusing anyone. Going back to my commentary, uh, picking up the reading right here in the middle of the paragraph, once the child, the Jewish people, matured in their faith, that is, they placed their trust in Yeshua, they gained lasting covenant membership and, just, and thus received the promise of the Father. And this is the challenge that Paul is making to both the Jewish people of his day as well as those Gentiles who are seeking to undergo ritual conversion to become legally recognized Jews. Merely being born Jewish did not secure the promises offered by the Father. Right? That's the gospel of the influencers. Rather, they, the, the, the Gentiles, being heirs, were considered as slaves being governed, as it were, by the Torah, the Pythagogos, until they should meet the teacher of righteousness. So both Jew and Gentile in their unregenerate state are both considered slaves, even though the, the Jews, in Paul's analogy, were heirs because of the promises made to the father. In other words, because God was their father, they were already born into the family on a natural ethnic, ethnic perspective. But until they reached the maturity, the, the, the age of maturity, that is, until they became a genuine, lasting covenant member by faith in Messiah, they were basically considered slaves. They were no better than slaves. In this passage, Paul reveals that Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, does enjoy covenant status on a limited basis. This is why I went through the lengthy discussion about limited covenant membership and lasting covenant membership.
right? The two levels of covenant membership that we read about in the Torah. Remember, Paul says in the book of Romans that not all Israel is, is Israel. We read about that in, I think, Romans chapter 9, uh, leading up to chapter 11 with this olive tree theology. Not all Israel is Israel. What does he mean that not all Israel is Israel? He means that within greater Israel, there's a remnant Israel. And the remnant Israel is the true and lasting covenant members of the promise versus national Israel, the larger part of Israel that has not yet espoused to faith in Messiah. Although they are covenant members, they are only temporal covenant members. So there is the Israel within Israel. There, That is to say, there's the remnant Israel that exists within national Israel. Okay, let's keep going. So Paul reveals that Am Israel does enjoy covenant status on a limited basis due to being merely born into Abraham's family. Yet, he does not emphasize this truth unnecessarily here in the book of Galatians, as I believe it had a tendency to lead the average Jewish person to an illogical conclusion, one that suggested full and lasting covenant membership based on their position at birth or conversion for the non-native-born Gentile, without having arrived at, quote, the time set by the Father, end quote. Guys following what I'm saying? For a more fuller treatment of this idea of Jewish people and their 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 tendency to misunderstand their covenant position within God, read Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17, and don't finish till you get down to about chapter 3, verse 23, I think. That whole section is a nice complement to Galatians chapter 2, verse 15, going down to the end of chapter 3. So, read those two on your own. Galatians chapter 2 and 3, and read that along with Romans chapter 2 and 3, and you'll see how they kind of fit together, hand in glove. All right, let's keep reading my, reading my commentary. We're going just a little bit longer today because we had some technical difficulties earlier with Skype, and so I'm trying to make up the time by finishing the section in my commentary. Starting in verse 3 of chapter 4, in the same way we also, when we were children, Paul says, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Here's my commentary. We're near the bottom of page 138, moving into page 139. Comments. Notice how Paul switches to the personal pronoun we to intimately identify with his audience. Many commentaries inclu commentators, including uh, Tim Haig, uh, feel that Paul is basically describing the Jewish people when he says we. For instance, I say in my commentary that Paul, too, was the son of Abraham according to the flesh. Right, Paul was circumcised on the eighth day, eighth day, because his parents did so according to the commandment. He too, top of page one thirty nine, was an heir, yet was treated like a slave until arriving at personal trust in Yeshua. Right, makes sense. So Paul can make sense of this analogy because he was at this point in time, and he's trying to get the Gentiles in his letter to understand that that. Until they are, until they place their faith in Messiah, they are basically slaves as well, albeit from a different perspective than, for instance, the Jewish people of Paul's day. Jewish ethnicity was found to be lacking of true covenant membership, short of embracing faith in the promised seed. This is the challenge that Paul is making to the Jewish influencers of his day. Just because you converted, or just because you were born Jewish, doesn't mean you've arrived. And for the Gentiles. If you would decide to undergo the, the covenant conversion, I'm sorry, undergo um, um, a proselyte conversion, if you, unless you place your faith in Messiah, you still have not yet arrived. You simply changed your temporal covenant status from that of Gentile to that of Jew. And you've joined the temporal covenant membership group known as Israel, but you're still a slave. You're still a minor until you arrive at the moment of salvation uh, of placing your trust and faith in Yeshua. Meaning, 
from a sin perspective, and we're going to move towards this as we keep reading down through verses four through nine, four through seven, actually four through nine later on. Paul's going to basically explain that there's no real change on the inside. A status change from Gentile to Jew is only a status change on the outside. It's only washing the cup on the outside, if we can use the analogy that Yistru described, uh, the 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 um the charge that he leveled against the Pharisees, how that they are they're like whitewashed tombs. They look nice and polished on the outside because of their works of righteousness, because of their good deeds, because of their adherence to Torah commands, because of of adherence uh, or uh, avoid avoidance of idolatry and and things like that. But unless they have genuine faith in God, then the the heart is still uh, um, desperately wicked, right? It's still darkened, and their eyes are actually still darkened. And Paul's using the same concept because he understands now from a firsthand perspective what it what it's like to think that just because you're Jewish that you have arrived that everything's okay. Remember, Paul describes himself in the book of Philippians as as blameless according to the works of the law, according to this covenantal nomism perspective, according to the according to the works of the law that describes the the the, the actions of a man as he um as he maintains his membership in Israel. So he stops to explain this slavery lest his audience misunderstand his analogy. Israel was to one extent, as I read in my commentary, Israel was to one extent or another always in slavery, even though she, at the time of Paul's letter, dwelled in the land of her forefathers. Now, if I can use an anachronistic term here, the Zionists of Paul's day, right, those who were strongly in favor of, of uh, this would be the people who were closer to Jerusalem, right, the the the, the Judeans, if I could use that term instead, the Zionists of Paul's day, would not easily argue about such slavery, pointing to Rome as her captor, right? The Jewish people of Paul's day, the ones who are who are very politically motivated to to throw off the shackles of Rome, these are the Zionists that I'm describing, they would agree with Paul, yes, we are in slavery. We got set free from Egypt, and we made our way to the promised land, and then we got uh, thrown into slavery during the time period of the Assyrians, and again in slavery during the time period of the Babylonian, and then we got rescued and brought back into our land again, and now here we are in slavery again under the Greco-Roman authorities. Oy vey, oy vey, we're in slavery. So these are the people that would probably agree with Paul's analogy of being in slavery. They would point to Romans or captor. Yet, Paul wanted his readers to come to an even more personal and pertinent realization that outside of personal trust in Yeshua, they were actually slaves to the Stoikeon, the Stoikeon of the very world around them. Now, here's where we got to get a little technical for a moment. Let me jump down to the footnote of number 135. Um, the Stoikeon were, uh, as defined by Thayer's and Smith's Bible Dictionary, right, the TSBD, the Stoikeon are defined as, um, quote, the elements from which all things have come, the material causes of the universe, the heavenly bodies either as parts of the universe or as others think, because in them the elements of man, life, and destiny were supposed to reside, end quote. So essentially in Paul's day, the, um, the uh, let me keep reading my commentary and you will see part of this. Uh, outside of faith in Messiah, uh, everyone was a slave basically to the stoicheon of the very world around him. Uh, four verse, chapter 4, verses 8 through 9 below that we're not going to get to this week, they actually reveal that these stoikeon are actually demons, right? It's doctrines of demons, it's philosophies of demons, and, it, and in fact, it's, it's owing, it's, 
the 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 human idea the human the philosophical human perspective that the, all the world is controlled by this stoicheon by this stoicheon is actually a doctrine of demons itself in fact the stoics right from which we also get the word stoicheon the stoics were those ancient greek philosophers that the religious hebrews of paul's day were attempting to avoiding becoming like by espousing to to the Judaism, instead of espousing to Greek philosophy, they were trying to distance themselves from the, the, the philosophies of the ancient Greeks. And yet, Paul now reveals that outside of the regeneration offered by the Spirit of the Messiah, no matter if you're Jew or Gentile, a person was a legal heir, that is a slave, to even the baser principles of fallen human nature, complete with all of its ugliness, something that I believe was surely shocking to the candidate of righteousness. So from Paul's perspective, it didn't matter whether you are a Jewish religious person, a Pharisee, a Sadducee, an Essene, no, it didn't matter. If you didn't espouse the faith in God, then from even though the outside looked quite clean and you, perhaps you avoided all of the, the nonsensical uh, Greek philosophy that, that permeated the, 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 the uh, society of the, that day by walking a different path known as Torah observance, it didn't matter really because from the inside, you were actually still a slave to the Stoichion. In other words, as we're going to read later on in, in chapter 4, verse 8 through 9, you were actually still slaves to the demons. The God of this world was still controlling you, whether you knew it or not or liked it or not. Understand my point? All right, let's keep reading. Let's see if we can. Um, let me let me see how far we can get. We might have to break this off and uh, 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 continue reading next week. Mm, no, I think we can make it. Starting at verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. All right. Here's where we're going to get some sharp disagreements between. We're going to start to begin to get some sharp disagreements. Um, between the tr traditional Christian view and the traditional Messianic view as we start to move into this discussion about law again. The first part of this verse, where, where it says, uh, the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son, I think this requires very little explanation. My comments go on to say, the meaning is quite obvious. Quote, born of a woman, in quotes, uh, speaks of Yeshua's humanity. Even though he came from heaven, he had an earthly mother named Miriam, Mary making him as human as every other person born on planet Earth, Adam and Eve excluded from the mother category since God created them directly, of course. But Yeshua was fully able to, as the book of Hebrews describes, sympathize and well, sympathize with our weaknesses. That's uh, Hebrews 4, verse 15. I go on to say in my commentary, the second part of the verse containing the phrase, quote, born under the law, end quote, is usually understood to mean, quote, born into a law-keeping environment, viz., as a Jewish man in a Jewish community, end quote. Indeed, the Barnes Notes commentary to this verse conveys the prevailing Christian interpretation, which reads, quote, Made under the law, as one of the human race, partaking of human nature, he was subject to the law of God. As a man, he was bound by its requirements and subject to its control. He took his place under the law that he might accomplish an important purpose for those who were under it. He made himself subject to it that he might become one of them and secure their redemption. End quote. Footnote number 136 points to Barnes, and Notes, Barnes Notes online version, um, uh, 1843, and I pulled that from BibleHub.com. Let's keep reading my commentary. Tim Haig, however, sees Paul continuing the line of thought with this phrase, born under the law. 
he continues the line of thought that uh, began in uh, Gen- uh, Galatians 3, 13 and 14, indeed providing a parallel to that section. So Haig writes in his Galatians commentary, he explains that born under Torah here likely carries with it the sense that as sinners, top of page 140, as sinners, mankind finds themselves under the curse of the Torah, a curse from which only the redemption proffered by Yeshua could bring a remedy. Footnote number 137 shows that I lifted that from uh, Heg's Galatians commentary. I go on to say in my notes, personally, I tend to think that Paul could be attempting to convey either one or both of these important aspects of Christ being referred to as under the law, end quote. So it's not necessary at this juncture to draw a sharp disagreement between the traditional Christian views and the ongoing or the uh, the later uh, messianic views. Let's keep reading my commentary. Um, verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 5 reads, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. All right. Uh, Paul goes on to say, quote, in my commentary, Recall that I stated an opinion that there exists a parallel between these verses, which is chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, and Galatians 3, 13 and 14. You're encouraged to read the commentary from 3, 13 and 14 from that location above. Starting in 4, 5, however, I say in my commentary right here, however, as with verse 4 above, quote, under the law, end quote, could, I say, Refer to Jews, right? Those who are, to redeem those who were under law, meaning naturally those who had been given the law at Sinai. This, of course, would naturally refer to Jews as opposed to Gentiles. Or it could, it could refer to all those under God's condemnation as unregenerate sinners prior to coming to a personal decision of the lordship of his son. That is, Jews and Gentiles outside of Messiah. Understand my my, uh, analogy there? Under the law can refer to those who are under condemnation. And this would include both Jews and Gentiles, not just Jews who receive the Torah. I go on to say in my commentary, after all, Paul does in fact count himself in this group with his use of the first person plural pronoun, we. Notice that in the verse, he says, to redeem those who are under law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So he includes himself in that group. And of course, he is both a Jew as well as someone who was under the combination of the Torah before he came to faith in Jesus. Let's continue my commentary. And since he's writing to a group mixed of Jews and Gentiles, the we, I believe, must apply the statement to all that are present. In this fashion, I believe he describes Gentiles who most certainly grew up outside of a Torah-keeping community as those who were nevertheless, quote, under the law, end quote, while they were outside of the personal knowledge of Christ as Redeemer. You guys understand my analogy there? My understanding and interpretation of this verse is that, in one sense, Gentiles were not under the law because they did not receive the law at Sinai as a people group. The law was really given to Israel in the sense that God only cut a covenant with Israel as a people group of the earth. And the the Torah didn't extend to Gentiles in mass, albeit the Torah was applicable to Gentiles as they joined Israel on a personal basis, even in the time period of the Tanakh. So thus, we can read verses in the Tanakh that explain that the um, that there's one law for the native born and for the sojourner who comes into Israel on an individual basis. So 
from the very beginning, even from, from Exodus chapter 19 and 20, when the Torah was given to the people group known as Israel, remember, recall that Israel, even at, at her inception, was uh, comprised of, of Jews and Gentiles. She was a, mix, she was a multi-ethnic nationality uh, entity. She was a multi-ethnic entity. She contained Jews and Gentiles within her. She wasn't, a primary, she wasn't completely Jews although she was probably primarily Jews, but she had Jews and Gentiles within her from the very beginning. Recall that the book of Exodus describes that a mixed multitude left uh, from Egypt that day when God set them free after the 10th plague. So we know that Jews and Gentiles were part of Israel from the very beginning. And this sets the paradigm for us to understand that Gentiles can and have been joining Israel all along. The Torah was never given primarily to Jewish people. The Torah was never given exclusively to Jewish people, although we could probably say it was given primarily to Jewish people, but not exclusively. You see my careful distinction. So Gentiles joined Israel, and in joining Israel, uh, Israel as a people group, they joined themselves to God as their God, and because of that, they then uh, adopted the Torah of Israel uh, as their national. Um, constitution at the same time. And so Torah became applicable to them. So in that sense, they were under the law. However, even for the surrounding Gentile people groups who did not join national Israel on a limited covenant basis, that is to say, they did not become circumcised or they did not simply join Israel uh, Israel and, and espouse the faith in, in, in Israel's God, albeit the, by, by not by not uh, maintaining genuine faith in God at, the, at that perspective, in other words, they just joined people the people group of Israel from a political perspective or from from a um, from a what do we call it an um, and uh, uh, what's the word we use today uh, an immigration perspective right they immigrated to Israel if I could borrow a term from today's language if they immigrated to Israel back in the time period of Tanakh but they didn't have faith in God yet they were still also under the law. Even if they didn't immigrate to Israel, even if they chose not to join the people of group of Israel, even if they chose to remain where they were in their own na- in their own nation, they were still from a spiritual perspective under the law because they were under the condemnation that's reserved that they inherited from um from uh the uh original sin of Adam. And you can read about that in Romans chapter five. Okay, so in my commentary, basically, Paul is under is it can be using this phrase under the law to refer either to Israel, national Israel or to refer to anyone who has not yet placed their faith in God. And so um, I think that's probably a good way to uh, interpret this particular verse, chapter 4, verse 5. And then we, the final verse in my commentary, that we're, and we're going to close out the commentary tonight with this, is verse 6 and 7, which reads out of the ESV. And because you are sons, right, here's this B verb again, you are sons, you Gentiles. You do not need to undertake proselyte conversion to become sons, supposedly. You're already sons. You've arrived. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, to close out his analogy about the about the the kleronomos, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In the English it says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. But if I pull up the Greek, uh, where it says, hoste ukati e doulos, ala wias e de wias, kai kleronomos dia theu. 
this word kleronomos is an heir. That's the word that he began with earlier up in verse uh, 1, 2, and 3. The heir is the one who's a slave. The kleronomos is a kleronomos. He's an heir, but he's a slave. And in Paul's uh, explanation here, he's no longer a slave, right? He's no longer a doulos, which is the word for slave, but he's now a son. He's now a son. He's a weos. And um, he becomes a weos because of his faith in the Messiah. He's an heir through God, is the kleronomos diatheu, and he, he gains this, this new status as a son, and it joins his heirship, and he graduates, as it were. He, he grows up, he matriculates, he comes to receive the inheritance that God had promised to him all along, even when he was a minor. But now he receives this inheritance because of his faith in God through the Messiah Yeshua. And that's the turning point that Paul's trying to get the Gentiles to understand. The turning point doesn't take place by a change of ethnicity from Gentile to Jew. The turning point takes place because of a heart circumcision, because of the, the, the circumcision that's done without hands, because of the down pain of the spirit that's made on a spiritual level. And so let me read my commentary and then close it out with that. Continuing with the contextual son and heir theme, right, the weos and kleronamos theme that Paul is emphasizing at the moment, he now wishes for his readers, both Jews and Gentiles and Messiah, but perhaps primarily Gentiles, because he's using this, using this Greco-Roman analogy from, from Roman law, and because they are the ones who would be the Judaizers, right? If we, if we correctly understand that term Judaize, it's the term given to the people who are seeking to take on Jewish status, not the term given to the people who are trying to impose the Jewish status. So the Gentiles are the Judaizers, not the Jewish people themselves. So I think primarily Paul's speaking to the Gentile Judaizers, although his his theology also applies to Jews who have not yet come to faith in Yeshua. But these people, he wants them to understand, the unbelievers, to understand that to strive to gain or to maintain a legally recognized Jewish identity in the society of Israel is pointless if God has not sent his spirit into their hearts, causing them to be counted as true, genuine sons and thus true, genuine heirs. Do you understand my analogy again? We have to understand that covenant membership exists on these two levels. We have the temporal covenant membership that's given to Israel and they enjoy it because God uh, made a promise to their fathers and therefore as natural born Israelites, they are born with this temporal covenant membership and then circumcision of the flesh comes along to demonstrate that sign of physical belonging to the physical temporal people group of God a membership that's only temporal because if they die without graduating towards faith in God and faith in Messiah, then all of that is uh, ends at death. None of it carries over into any age to come, and none of it is inherited in heaven. They just die, and that's it. They, they, they go to the grave, and, and all of it's lost. Compare and contrast this with the lasting covenant membership that a person gains once they place a genuine faith in God, which entails genuine faith in Messiah. And this genuine faith is available both to Jew and Gentile. And the covenant sign is the sign of circumcision of the heart. Okay. 
we might also say that 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 this sign is baptism, but that's 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 a different discussion for a different day. I go on to say in my commentary basically that that Paul wants them to understand that um, to be counted as true sons and true heirs, you must have the Spirit of God on your heart. Here once again, as I close my commentary for tonight, we see the true theme of Paul's letter to the Galatians. What is his true theme? God determines genuine and lasting identity based on our personal identification with Yeshua, not based on establishing our own way of righteousness. And as I come full circle in my commentary, the whole idea of getting in and staying in that's described by E.P. Sanders in Paul and Palestinian Judaism is best understood that the Judaisms of Paul's day were seeking to, to, uh, they, they sought to maintain a theology that taught that they, as natural-born sons of Israel, got into the covenant because of their election as Jews. And they got into God's people group because they were born Jewish and because God elected them as a people group on a national level. And there's some truth to that. Remember, natural covenant membership is a true description and it's accurate description of their limited covenant membership. So they believe that that covenant membership was all that they needed to be recognized as righteous in God's eyes. And thus, the the duty of a natural covenant membership in their perspective was that they needed to maintain loyalty to the Torah. That's where the works of the law comes in. That's where the the, the covenantal nomism comes in. They believe that 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 maintenance of Torah commands, that is, fidelity to God's covenant, was incumbent upon a, a, a covenant member so that they would not be cut off from the covenant. That is to say, God would not exercise the penalty known as karat and and uh, 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 kill them, which is what karat means, be put out of the community and eventually be killed off by God himself. So, um, basically, getting in and staying in was done on getting in was done by grace in their perspective, that is to say by election, and staying in was done by self-effort, that is by Torah obedience. So getting in and staying in were two sides of a covenantal coin that the Jewish people of Paul's day firmly held to. Paul comes along and has to explain to them that, no, your idea of covenantal nomism is a little bit skewed. There is a covenantal nomism that I want to describe to you, Paul says, but here's the way it's described. Getting in is done by faith the Messiah, and staying in is done by faith in Messiah. In other words, the two sides of the coin for Paul are both the same. Genuine faith in Messiah and genuine faith in Messiah. So the getting in and staying in of Paul's covenantal nomism differs radically from the Judaisms of his day in that genuine and lasting covenant membership is only secured by one's faith in Messiah as one uh, enters into the same faith that Abraham exercised. And it is only once is only in that position that a person can be recognized as dikaiosune, as genuinely righteous in God's eyes, and thus there's no more striving that needs to be done. Recall that uh, that I keep mentioning in my commentary, and I'll close with this thought, that this is radically different from the description of Paul's letter as is interpreted by the traditional Christian view of today. The traditional Christian's view that Paul's Judaisms were largely seeking to enter, that is to say, to um, to get in by keeping Torah 
And I don't think they even describe any staying in, maybe staying in by keeping Torah as well. So I, I think from a traditional Christian perspective, getting in and staying in are both done by Torah observance. In other words, the, the Christians of today, the pastors today, think that Paul's, Paul, Paul's Judaism thought that faith in Jesus needed to be augmented by Torah observance. So they have faith in Jesus plus works of law equal salvation. And that's how most of the commentaries are going to describe um, the, 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 the other gospel that Paul uh, sought to dismantle and disprove, the, the pseudo-gospel, the false gospel, the, the, um, the, the, the errant theology of, of Paul's day is described in that terminology. And so in that caricature of, of, of works righteousness, this merit theology that's described by, by Luther and by reformers and by the Christians of today, because Torah observance is seen as the enemy of the gospel, particularly in terms of trying to get into covenant membership, in other words, trying to become saved, because Torah observance is seen as the enemy of the gospel, it's no wonder that traditional Christianity has inherited this notion that there's no more need for Torah in the life of a believer, particularly when we look at that analogy of the Pied Gogas, where the Torah is described as something that's no longer needed once a person uh, arrives at faith in Jesus. And so we can understand how traditional Christian teaching today is so heavily uh, against going back under Torah, such as Sabbath-keeping, kosher-keeping, festival-keeping, um, circumcision, uh, mezuzah, seat-seat-wearing, things like that. We can see that perspective because they think that not only is this n not the way to become saved, but also it becomes a dangerous way of trying to live your wife life in a manner of sanctification because it becomes um, a, a distraction and it becomes a uh, it, it basically describes a, uh, a, a turning back to the weak and beggarly elements of the word to the, to the stoichia. Most Christians equate the, um, the Torah as the, uh, the weak and beggarly elements of the word, the stoichion themselves, to use the noun. And so um, we can see that we Messianics, we Torah community members, have our work cut out for us as we seek to navigate through the book of Galatians and seek to better understand how can Paul sing the praises of Torah in other parts of his letters where he says the, the Torah is holy, righteous, and good, Romans chapter 7, how that we do do not make void the law through faith, but we establish the law, Romans chapter 3, verse 31, how that he agrees with the, the, the law of God after, after the inward man, Romans chapter 7, verse 25 or so, um, and things like that. How can Paul say very positive things about the law in other parts of his um Books, you know, Second Timothy three fifteen that the law is um, uh, profitable for proof, for instruction, for training in righteousness, and yet Paul still also at the same time believed that the law is weak and beggarly, and that it is equated with the Stoichion, the very demon uh, uh, theologies of Paul's day, and indeed the false religions and the false uh, uh, philosophies and the uh, the the um, the humanistic. Uh, uh, ways of thinking of Paul's day, the, the, the fates and the destinies that, that the unbelievers held to. In fact, the same people believe that today. How can Paul describe the Torah in those terms? I think it's better if we understand the book of Galatians from the perspective of the, what the influencers were teaching, the Judaizers were, were espousing to, is not getting in by using the Torah, but getting in by using their ethnicity. And then the Torah came along once you became a Jew, to help you maintain the position that you gained by becoming a Jew. And we'll, of course, continue to, to speak on that term, speak in those uh, terms uh, as we continue through my commentary. But for now, let's close. I went 
uh, way over. Um, and I apologize, but I trust that it has been fruitful. Let's close in prayer, and we'll meet next week, and we'll be poised to begin uh, uh, this uh, uh, verse, starting in verse 8, where uh, Paul talks about, again, this explanation of the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, and how that the, Gent- the Galatians were actually seeking to return to that slavery. And we're going to see this interesting um, uh, association between the, the these the Stoikion and uh, uh, the actual demonic entities of of Paul's day, and we'll see how that uh, this cannot actually be the Torah. All right, let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name and thank you for the opportunity to sit and study with the students. I pray that you'll continue to give them insight into the text. I pray that you'll give them a heart to do your word, to seek after you and to follow after your ways. I pray that you'll give them a desire to press into the Holy Spirit, to put on the armor of God, to be clothed with the, the garment of Messiah, to put on the mind of Messiah, to be uh, to let the words of Christ dwell richly in them. Lord, I pray that you'll continue to raise us up to be witnesses for those around us, to continue to be to be not ashamed of the gospel of Messiah, for it is the good news of salvation to the Jew and also to the Greek. It is the power of salvation, Lord, and we are not ashamed of this good news. Give us open doors. Give us opportunities to share. Give us a holy boldness to take a stand. Help us to not be ashamed of who we are and uh, what you have done for us, but to... Um, uh, what does the Torah say? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let them let them speak out. Let us contend for the faith that was once delivered uh, to the saints. Thank you, Father, for all of these things. I pray that you'll uh, continue to heal us and to protect us. Lord, I pray a special prayer for the victims of the um, recent hurricane in America, uh, in Texas, and now moving into Louisiana and, the, and those lower parts of the United States there around the Gulf of Mexico. I pray that you'll um, give the uh, people... Uh, a, a strength in during this time of need. I pray that you'll be a God of providence, uh, providing just the basics, Lord, the food, the clothing, the water, the food, uh, I'm sorry, the, um, the, the medicine, uh, the things that they need, Lord, just the shelter. There's, uh, in times like this, it's just the basics of life that become so important and so many thousands of people have been, uh, displaced. And now, Lord, uh, as the, the floodwaters are receding, uh, we know that there are diseases that are going to set in the, 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 um, the, um, uh, all of the, uh, of the, uh, what do we say? The, um, the pollutants in the water and and the mosquitoes that are going to come along in 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 hordes uh, later on, Lord. We know that this is going to, you know, in other words, the worst is not uh, behind them, Lord. It's it's there's still a lot. They still have really a, a a very hard struggle. And so, Lord, we ask for mercy and grace during this time period. Uh, let the Christians be a light. Let believers be a witness of God's providence and mercy for those that he saved and the lives that were saved during this time. And we'd be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory for all the things that you are in control of. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. 
Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.